The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. I'd like to know where they got those photographs. <laughs> Some things have changed. I actually did not need, in those days, to wear a wig. Benjamin Franklin is famous for saying, among many other things, that the only two certainties in life were death and taxes. If he were writing today, I suspect he might want to alter one of those terms. Not so much death and taxes as debt and taxes. <laughs> because debt has become as much a part of our way of life as Death has always been the means of not living. We hear about this most often when people talk about public debt, and that's pretty unnerving on its own terms. National borrowing now sits at over $33 trillion. That's a sum so gargantuan that most of us can't even conceptualize it. And in case that's too abstract to be easily grasped, it works out to an indebtedness of $98,518 for each living American. I thought you'd like to know. But that's only public debt. The American way of living floats on bubbles of personal credit as well. On average, every credit card owner in America is toting over $7,900 in debt. Two-thirds of the graduates who marched to commencement in May have loans to pay off that, on average, come in at over $37,338. Now, if you've been listening to this and sagging deeper and deeper into your chairs as I've recited it, maybe the only useful consolation I can offer is that it could be worse. <laughs> in Roman times, a borrower who couldn't pay up was sold into slavery. That way, lenders were sure of getting their money's worth out of you. Actually, Romans who were being pursued for debt could even sell one of their children into slavery as a way of dealing with the problem. That opens up a whole new vista of modern opportunities. As slavery was abolished, we became kinder. We just threw you into prison if you missed payments. In England, imprisonment for debt continued as late as the 20th century. But now, let's suppose for a moment that without any warning, someone steps in and offers to pay off all your credit card debt at once, on the spot. How would that brighten your face? And suppose this same person adds that all of your student loans or your children's loans are now fully paid. My guess is that there would be more than just a mix of delight. There would be a touch of incredulity. And when your benefactor announces that the entire national debt will be considered dissolved, I think it's pretty likely that you will move over into disbelief and begin dialing 911 to report something. And yet, this is the equivalent of what the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2, in verses 13 through 14. When you were dead in your sins, 
And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Not debt with dollar signs, but something even more forbidding in its consequences and even more hopeless of being paid off than a legal debt. Not just an obligation, not just a responsibility, but a debt of moral failure which can be calculated down to the last moral penny. There is a charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, Paul says. That debt is hidden inside that opaque English word charge. Take it back to St. Paul's Greek, and it means literally handwriting. But the Greeks also knew that handwriting was a colloquial way of speaking about any legal document, and especially about a bond or a debt. And a charge is what we still use when we talk about our credit card accounts. So what Paul is saying here in Colossians is, and and saying it with all the precision of a mortgage lender or a credit card company, is that we are in debt and to God. And what's more, that debt is so deep that it might as well be our grave because we're so far down in it that we are as good as dead in our sins. So you see, debt doesn't get any more cheerful in the Bible than it does at the bank. In fact, the Bible has a pretty dim view as a whole about debt. And it can be summed up fairly simply by saying, don't borrow and don't lend. Do not be one who shakes hands in pledge, says Proverbs 22, or puts up security for debts. By the same token, borrowing is just as questionable as lending. At best, the borrower is slave to the lender. And at worst, it becomes larceny. The wicked borrow and do not repay, says David in Psalm 37. And Paul sums it up sharply in Romans 13 when he says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. Now, it may not make for a very dynamic economic outlook, but it's bound to make sense to those four and a half million Americans who in the second quarter found their mortgages in delinquency, or the 20% of student loan borrowers who are in default. It also made sense to the ancient rabbis when they talked about their relationship with God. The great rabbi Akiba spoke of God as being like a storekeeper who lent out money and goods, recording each borrowing in a ledger. But just as that ledger would furnish the proof whenever the shopkeeper came to collect. So God demands of men and women some compensation for what he has lent them in terms of life or health or blessings. And so the great liturgy at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Avino Malkenu, includes the prayer, our Father, our King, in your great mercy, cancel all our debts. It was this same understanding, which is at the center of Jesus' direction to us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Because the debts we owe to God are formidable. Do we live and breathe? We do so because God gives us the means to do so. In him we live and move and have our being, says Paul in Acts chapter 17. Do we enjoy health and prosperity? We do so because God gives these things to us. Except the Lord builds the house, says David. They labor in vain that build it. Number up every aspect of your life from your first day until this one. And what do you have that has not been borrowed from the bank of God? Now, it would be nice to say, knowing this, that we should behave as God's good borrowers and repay our debts promptly and fully. And that would make for a very tidy world in which God provides the startup capital for our lives and we make the payments faithfully until we can finally say that we own our own lives and that God should be remarkably satisfied with us as a good investment. But that would be telling one of the biggest, fattest lies that has ever been told. Because the truth is that we haven't done anything close to what looks like paying our debts off to God. In fact, often we've actually gotten deeper into spiritual debt for precisely the same reasons that we get ourselves into fiscal indebtedness. Because we're overconfident and we think we're the masters of the universe and we can do anything we want. Yeah, that Visa card empowers us. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It, it empowers Bank of America. Sometimes we dig deeper into debt because we think we're entitled to things. And so we take them. And we put the entire focus of our lives on acquiring stuff. And then sometimes we dig deep into debt because we think other people are less intelligent than us or less deserving or more vulnerable. And therefore we can use them or manipulate them or take advantage of them to suit our pleasure. Each of these attitudes brings us into moral as well as fiscal debt. In fact, the parallels in the ways in which we've routinely mismanaged our finances so closely parallel the ways in which we mismanage our relationship to God that it shouldn't be any surprise that Paul tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it's not just that we have sinned, that ominous, overhanging word. Yes, we'll admit to having sinned. Oh, that's easy to do. In fact, I doubt whether there's anybody, even at their most self-confident, who would claim never to have sinned. What we fail to reckon with is the God against whom we have sinned. This is a very particular God, an infinite God, so that sinning, even only once, is a sin against an infinite being and with infinite consequences that stretch away beyond the rim of the universe to infinite dimensions. One sin. The old medieval theologians had a savagely neat way of putting this. Every sin, they said, is an attempt to murder God. No wonder James writes in the second chapter of his epistle, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point 
is guilty of breaking all of it. So when we cast our eye down the length of God's ledger, we not only find that we are in debt, we find that we are like so many mortgages underwater. Even worse than that, we're not only underwater, we have drowned. That's what Paul means in Colossians 2. You were dead in sins. But Paul's purpose is not to have us reaching for the deject button. You read on in Colossians. God made you alive with Christ. In fact, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Because you see, after after we have traced our fingers down that long, fearful column of God's moral ledger, God did something which never happened with Bernie Madoff or Enron or Bear Stearns or Silicon Valley Bank and the other famous failures in the world of high finance. God stamped it, paid in full. This wasn't because God was suddenly experiencing a fit of generosity. It is because someone else stepped in and paid the moral account in full. And that was our Savior, Jesus Christ. All the debits that appeared in our moral ledger of indebtedness disappeared and were transferred to the moral ledger of Christ. You see, they didn't go away. They couldn't go away. They were offenses. They were sins. They were murder. But they were transferred from our ledger to the ledger of Jesus Christ. And he paid the penalty for them all on the cross. That's what we like to call among the theologians the passive obedience of Christ, his submission to the penalty demanded by God the Father for sin. But that wasn't all. J. Gresham Machen once wrote, the passive sufferings of Christ discharged the enormous debt we owe, but that only brought us to a zero balance. That alone does not get us into heaven. It simply returns us to the starting point. We needed more if we expected to appear before God at the day of judgment, and we got it in the form of the active obedience of Christ. Because not only were all the moral debits of our lives transferred to Christ's account, but all the moral credits of Christ's perfect life and truth and resurrection are then transferred to us And that is what allows us to stand before God, not only debt-free, but with the full value of Jesus Christ's active obedience in the place of those debts. In effect, when God looks on those who have been redeemed by the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ, what he sees is no longer us. What he sees is the righteousness of his Son, And so the hymn says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. 
This gives the Christian, as that great theologian Charles Hodge once wrote, a right to the full pardon of all his sins and a claim to justice to eternal life. And just to show how very satisfying this entire arrangement is to God, God takes the old handwriting, the old debt papers, and he sets them aside, nailing them to the cross. Now remember, if you can, how it felt on the day, and all of us have had a day like this. Remember how it felt on the day on the turnpike? When a car careened through the lane barrier and came within an inch of smashing you into a twist of metal? You pulled over, you got out of your car, and the shock and the adrenaline almost made you dizzy. And suddenly, even if it was raining cats and dogs, it seemed inexpressibly good to be alive. We experience something very close to that when we finally understand just what kind of a spiritual debt has been canceled out by Jesus Christ. On whatever day you looked into yourself, looked hard and looked real, and saw yourself for the first time for what you are, when you saw your moral deficits and your behavioral deficits, and you wondered how on earth or in heaven you were ever going to get around them, on whatever day you were raised with him through faith in the power of God, that's when you knew what it was to be really free, to be inexpressibly alive. That's what Paul means when he says, God made you alive together with him, alive in every vibrant, vigorous sense of the word, alive because the debts that were smothering you have dissipated, and you can go free. Charles Wesley put that overwhelming sense of deliverance from debt in poetry. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So let markets fizzle, as they will. Let bankers and brokers droop as they will. There is no debt so towering or so deadly as the debt Paul is describing here in Colossians. And that debt has been paid in Jesus Christ, paid in full, and the ledger nailed with a spike to the cross. So I say to you, now go and live. Continue as Paul says in Colossians, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Receive this benediction. Now unto him who can keep you from falling and to present you glorious before his throne, to him be honor and glory, wisdom and power, now and forever. Amen.